Holy Spirit, I am in desperate need of you. These people are in desperate need of you. I consider it a blessing to know that I need you, but there are some who don't even recognize that they have a need for you. You are the one who is sent, proceeding from the Father and the Son, to indwell your people as the down payment of the glory and the inheritance that is ours in Christ Jesus. You are the one who is sent by the Father and the Son to convict the world of justice, righteousness, and sin. You are the one that is sent from the Father and the Spirit to embolden and empower your people to proclaim truth in the face of lies, to proclaim truth in the face of adversity, to remain faithful to the Word of God, and to have no other loyalties than our loyalty to you, Christ Jesus. But my flesh loves the glory. My flesh loves the credit. My flesh keeps getting me in trouble, keeps leading me astray. And so I beg you to be with me, Holy Spirit, in power, to lead me to fresh waters, to guide me in righteousness and justice, to convict me of sin, to remind me of the beauty of godliness and holiness. We need you, Holy Spirit. You remind us what is true versus what is false. You are the great lie detector test for all things. For you are the one who inspired the very text that we study week in and week out. Lord, we thank you for loving a people who are sinful and raggedy in so many respects and cocky and dismissive of you. We thank you for not allowing us in this moment to ignore you. In this moment, you've graced us with the opportunity to be before you. And I pray that we don't take it for granted. We've learned anything about life within the last 10 years is that at any moment life can be snatched. There is no safe place on this earth for any man, child, or woman. And so we don't walk this earth looking for safety anymore. We don't, we don't, we don't worship the God of safety anymore. We go where you tell us to go. We say where you tell us to say knowing that our safety comes from you. You taught us that in the Old Testament, Lord, when the, the Hebrew boys were facing the flames from the king of Babylon. They didn't shrink. They said, whether, you spe- whether God spares us or not, we will not not be faithful. And so, Lord, we stand with that same disposition with the help of the Spirit of God in us. Because if it's up to me, I'm running. I'm failing, I'm scared, I'm cowering. But in your strength, in your power, Lord, I have the strength to conquer such things. Nothing is against me. And nothing against me has the strength to conquer me if I am in Christ Jesus. And so, Lord, would you fill us with your Spirit this morning? Lead us through the truth of your Word. 
Make us different than we were when we came in. We give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good morning, Pillar Church. Pastor Canaan here. Um, we're going to continue in our series in the book of Galatians. So go ahead and turn in your copy of God's Word to the book of Galatians. You can go ahead and switch that over, Jim. I'm a, I'm a, unless you want to leave. I'll I tell you. I'll tell you. But when I need the verse, I'm like, a clack. You got to give me the verse. We've been in the book of Galatians for six months now. And for six straight months, straight months, I have been banging the theological gong of justification by faith. We've been hearing that over and over and over again, that the only way we are made right with God is not through a trite belief that we are okay with God and we have no substance behind it. You know, some people, well, me and God are good. No, you're not. That statement holds no water. We're not made right by, with God by acting a certain way, by treating others a certain way. That doesn't make you right with God, beloved. Well-wishing doesn't make you right with God. And part of the, the crux of the book is that obedience to God's law, no matter how dogged your effort is, does not make you right with God. That's not it. What makes us right with God is believing faith alone. I don't know about you, beloved, but I want to know God. I want to know him. And so far and in so much as I keep my eyes on my ability to attain an audience with him, I'll never, ever reach him. My hands, my arms are too short and too weak to, to climb the ladder high enough to stand before the God, the holy God of all the creation. We, we just can't. We can obey until our, until our face turns blue. We were born in iniquity, beloved. Born in sin, beloved. It's but a matter of a few hours before you fall back again. That's not how it happens. You'll never know God so long as you are focused on yourself nor your obedience to the law. Rather, we need to pull principles like Mary and Martha. When one stood at the feet of Jesus, the other was so busy preparing everything around them that Jesus said, no, what I need you to do is to stop everything and gaze and focus on me. That's the best thing. Y'all remember when Peter was in the boat and Jesus was walking on the water? Dope sight. He says, Peter, come on out here. Peter's focused on Jesus. What's he do? Walk on water. As soon as his eyes turn to everything else, what happens to, what happens to Peter? Sinking. What are the principles we're, we're, we're gleaning from this? Keep your eyes focused on Christ. That's the means by which we attain closeness to him, proximity to him. And I'm calling you this morning through the text to gaze at Jesus more than you. I know you're struggling with sin. That ain't a secret. I know you're wrestling, wrestling with shameful things in your life that you don't want anybody else to know. I already know you're wrestling with that because I'm wrestling with that. I know you've got beef with people in and around you. I know your pride won't allow you to ask for forgiveness or to ask them. To, and I know this already. Take your eyes off your situation. Take your eyes off of you and gaze at the one who's able to bring reconciliation between all things and all people. If you just gaze on him, beloved, he'll transform you. And he'll also justify you by faith in his name. The gospel is not the story of how we earn God's love through hard work and obedience. That's not the gospel. Just like you would never demand that a little child, am I good, D? Sound? Okay. 
Just like you would never demand a little child to earn your love, God doesn't demand you to earn his love. You're incapable. The gospel is the story about a God who loved us despite our sin. If you believe the gospel, the gospel of God's love, the reality that he sent his son to redeem a broken and fallen people, you will be justified, you will be changed for his glory. That's what the text says. This isn't our text, but I want, you to, I want this text in your system. It says, for while we were still helpless, that's a collective we, beloved, Jews, Gentiles, everybody. While we were still helpless, at the right time, what did Christ do? He died for the ungodly. He didn't die for those who were keeping the law perfectly. Y'all see that? He didn't die for those who was so kind to their neighbor. God just said, oh, shucks, come on into the kingdom. That's not what it says. It says he died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. That's how outrageous this gospel is. You're going to die for a sinner, bro? Verse 8, but God proves. I know I quote this verse a lot, but beloved, you need to have it highlighted in your Bibles because you're going to doubt that God loves you. And this verse is giving you proof of his love. God proves, where we at? His own love for us, and that while we were still sinners, not after we cleaned ourselves up, Y'all see this, right? We got to get out of the conditional bondage, this love bondage, conditional stuff that we do. I won't love you until you act right stuff. That's not the gospel. This is what we do with each other sinfully. Until you love me the way I want to be loved, I'm not displaying love to you. I'm not going to treat you the way I'm called to treat you by God because you haven't earned it yet. That's not the gospel. But we put it on each other. Beloved, stop that too. Gazing on Jesus will help that. It says, but while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, since we have now been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? And not only that, but we boast in God through our Lord, Christ, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. Beloved, it's simple believing faith that makes you right with God. Yet there are still some of us who may know this intellectually to some degree, but fail to live this out in their everyday lives. We'd make that deal with God. God, if you help me with X, then I will never do B again. Or if I, if I just do this enough, then I know I'll, I'll be able to feel God's love again. And then there are some of us who willingly put ourselves under the yoke of bondage, of saying the only way I could be made right with God is by uh, adhering to a certain set of laws or principles given by something called a covenant. And we're going to talk a lot about covenant, beloved. Today's going to be a little heady. Just letting y'all know, I tried to make it unheady. We'll see if how I, how I did after. Y'all let me know like that. You didn't do it. But let me know. Some of us are choosing to be under an inferior covenant, a covenant of fear, uncertainty, and slavery, yet trying to convince ourselves that if we try a little bit harder, obey a little bit better, we'll be good. This is the same lie that was being pushed through the, the region of Galatia, that if you want to be made right with God, you have to do X, Y, Z. What is that? Circum be circumcised and adhere to the law of God. Those two things plus faith equals salvation. But what did we learn but a few weeks ago? That anything you add to the work of Christ has ruined the work of Christ for you. 
He and he alone is the one who brings about our restoration and our salvation. There are some, beloved, who try to push us under a covenant that is not as good, or let me me say what the scripture says, is obsolete for those who believe in Christ. Beloved, there's a better covenant. I want to explain what covenant means in a minute. But look what the author of Hebrews says. Jesus has also become the guarantee of what? A better covenant. So covenant means, I'm I'm going to skip ahead just to get this to y'all. Covenant means relationship. Okay, that's what covenant means. These are the relationship. Laws are the terms and stipulations of a relationship. Okay? Every covenant has laws. Every relationship has stipulations. My relationship with my wife, I can't do certain things. I don't want to do certain things. I don't hit her. She doesn't hit me. She don't say bad words to me. I don't say bad words to her. In my house, the covenant of my home, everybody eats. Everybody helps clean up. Everybody cleans this, that, or the third. She helps with the dishes. I make sure the floors ain't got no crumbs. We work together. These are the laws or the terms of our covenant relationship that ensures that our relationship is working smooth. Y'all understand? There was a covenant put in place in the Old Testament, something we call the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, the covenant at Sinai. That covenant, beloved, is inferior to the covenant that has come in the person of Jesus Christ. The text says that. And so what we can't do is bind ourselves to an inferior covenant with an inferior set of laws, thinking that it's going to make us right with God. We're going to keep going. I I kind of jumped way ahead. I'm going to jump back. Look at me in the text, Galatians chapter 4. This is where we're at today. Galatians chapter 4, verse 21. Paul has a rhetorical question in, in Galatians chapter 4, verse 21. He says, tell me, you who want to be under the law, don't you hear the law? It's a rhetorical question. Remember the context. The people in Galatia are being influenced by false teachers who are trying to shove them under the Old Testament law saying that if you want to be made right with God, you know them Ten Commandments? Y'all know them 613 laws, statutes, that God gave to his people, Israel? If you want to be right with God, here you go. You got to obey them all. The problem is they don't know them all. No one's obeyed them all. Can't be made right with God that way. And we've exhausted that point up until this point in the book of Galatians. In Paul's day, during the, the, the old, in, the, in Paul's day, the Old Testament was broken up into three different categories. There's something that they call the law, which is the first five books of the Bible. Sometimes the law is referring to the actual com, uh, rules and stipulations between God and his people. But the law is also used to refer to the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Then there's the writings. Those are often the historical books, Samuels and the Chronicles. And then there's the prophets. Your Jeremiah's, your Ezekiel's, your Daniel's. Paul is referring to, he says, those who want to be under the law, he's actually, in this, in this verse, he's referring to the first five books of the scriptures. He's saying, you who, um, you who want to be under the law, you who, you who agree with those first five books, haven't you read those first five books? Essentially is what he's saying. You say that those first five books is everything. You want that Tanakh hard, right? Ain't you read the Tanakh, though? Because it says something that you're acting contrary to is what he's getting at. Verse 22, for it is written that Abraham, he's taking us back to Genesis. This is how you know what he's referring to. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, 
one by a slave and another by a free woman. Beloved, this is bringing us back to Genesis chapter 15, chapter 16, and chapter 21. That's not going to be up there if you want it. There it is. It's bringing us back to that narrative of Abraham, Sarah, and, a, and, a, and, his, and Sarah's slave named Hagar. I don't know if you've ever read the story, but God has promised that Abraham will be the father of many nations, that his seeds would multiply and they would fill the earth. That's God's promise to Abraham. Abraham's wife, her name is Sarah. Now, in order for uh, Abraham to fill the earth, he got procreate. Y'all see what I'm saying? Y'all see what I'm saying? All right, because I'm like, y'all don't know what I'm talking about? Come on now, you can talk to me now. I'm, I'm, I'm me, you can talk. There's a problem. Sarah's womb is barren. Sarah's unable to have children. God does it not know that. Yet he still promises that Abraham will have many children. How on earth is Abraham going to have many children when his wife can't have kids? So they come up with his plan. Sarah says, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to take my servant, Hagar, and my husband, Abraham. We're going to link them up together. Kind of boom. Abraham, you're about to have mad kids, doc. I'm going to send my slave to you. You go ahead and impregnate her. And then God's promise will be fulfilled. Beloved, that's a foolish reality that they did. They should not have done that, but that's what they did. And I can't help but think that Paul had, this, had that truth in his mind earlier in Galatians when he says, are you so foolish after beginning by the spirit, are you now finishing by the flesh? Beloved, you don't got to help God accomplish his promises. With your harebrained schemes, the, the result of that, that pregnancy was not a child of promise. It was the child of promiscuity. They weren't willing to wait for God's timing. Just as Abraham and Sarah tried to complete God's work by adding their own efforts. Notice why he uses this. Just as Abraham and Sarah try to complete God's work by their own merit and efforts, so too are these false teachers trying to convince the Galatians that in order to complete God's work of faith in them, that they have to add their own inventions and skills and, 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 and law-abiding to do it. Y'all see the connection? He's saying you're doing the same foolish thing that Abraham did. They forget that this truth is real. We need to keep our eyes on Jesus because he's the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. Some of your translations may say author and finisher. The good work that God starts is the good work that God will complete. Abraham and Sarah didn't have to do nothing outside the ordinary in order for that promise to be fulfilled. You continue to have a healthy relationship with your wife. Let me handle all the logistics. The scriptures teach this. This is what Paul says. He says, I'm sure of this, that he, as he is God, who started a good work in you. Who started it? God started. What did he start? A good work. Where? In you. What's he going to do? Bring it to completion. Not you bring it to completion. He will do that. So Hagar gives her slave to Abraham. She gets pregnant. All kind of beef ensues after that between Hagar and Sarah. And there's all kind of emotions happening now because her husband just now got another woman pregnant, but now that woman is having scornful thoughts toward, toward her, who's the first wife, and, and now there's this beef happening in this relationship, all because they tried to finish in the flesh what God started in the promise in the spirit. The child's name was Ishmael. Now, Paul says this 
about that relationship in verse 23. He says that one, the child, that child that was born from the slave, who was the slave, what was her name? Hagar, right? But the one by the slave was born as a result of the flesh. That wasn't God's, that wasn't God's doing. He didn't want that. While the one by the free woman, who's the free woman? Sarah, Abraham's wife. That child was born through the promise. Now, God, after 25 years, does open Sarah's womb. And that's something, y'all. I want y'all to think about that. If God makes you a promise today, and you got to wait 25 years. Beloved, half of y'all can't wait for 25 minutes. You pray for something. God, I need you to do X. I feel like I got a yes. 25 minutes later, you're like trying to do it in your own flesh, right? 25 years. So let's not go too hard on Abraham, beloved. 25 years is a long time. That's a quarter century that he waited for this promise. God, you said, God, you said, God, you said, God, you said. He's like, beloved, I got it. I know I said. I finished what I start. Don't worry about it. Let me handle logistics. If I said it, I'm going to do it. Essentially is what God is saying. Now, Paul's bringing this up as an illustration for his main point. What's his main point? That's the next verse. Verse 24. These things, what are these things? The illustration with Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar. These things are to be taken figuratively. For the woman represents, for the women, represent two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai and bears children into slavery. This is Hagar. So you see what he's doing? He's using this scenario of Abraham's life to illustrate the reality of two different covenants. Paul is breaking away from his analogy to reveal the, the point of his argument. Remember I said earlier, what's a covenant? A covenant is a relationship. And laws, they're terms, rules, and stipulations of that relationship. Sometimes a covenant, the rules of the covenant only apply to one side. Sometimes it applies to both sides. And sometimes it's a mixture. It just depends on the agreement that's made between the two parties that are covenanting together. Now, Paul is comparing these two covenants, and he says the covenant... There we go. He says the covenant at Sinai, that's the Mosaic covenant, and what you're going to do, if you look in your scriptures in Exodus chapter... Don't turn there. Exodus 19 through 31, you see the bulk of that covenant being laid out. That's the... the y'all remember the time when... Moses received the Ten Commandments from God. See, that's all you know about that happened in that scenario. You stop at, at chapter 20, but can continue reading from chapter 21 all the way to chapter 31, and there's rules and stipulations being laid out all over the place, including how you want to build my tabernacle. There's a whole bunch of stuff in those sections. This, the law is a unit. It's, a, it's one complete section of instructions from God, and he says, this is my covenant with you. And Paul says, that's Hagar. That covenant brings children of slavery. And he compares it to a new covenant, which represented by Sarah. It's something that the scriptures call the new covenant, which was established by Jesus. In fact, when Pastor Eric just gave communion, he says, when you drink this, this is the blood of the new covenant. With some other verses for you. That talks about the, the, the new covenant and the law of Christ. Now let's read chapter 24 and 25 with that understanding in the back of our mind. These things being taken figuratively, for the women represent two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai and bears children into slavery. This is Hagar. 
Now, Hagar represents Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. I need y'all to, to be wowed with what Paul is saying right here. This is a big deal. Put yourself in the shoes here. These are faithful, believing, some are Jews, some are Gentiles. And they've adhered to this old covenant for all of their lives. Paul's come out the woodwork saying, beloved, at the coming of Jesus, a new covenant has been established. If you continue to live by the old covenant, you are living in bondage to a performance-based religion that you will never be able to satisfy the wrath of God with. For them, it's how you attain freedom. But Paul is saying, no, beloved, freedom comes one way through our Lord Jesus Christ. And he has to convince a people who their whole life has believed one thing. Y'all should know because y'all stubborn people just like me. When you believe something your whole life and someone comes to you on some old opposite, what you do? You fight. You argue. You don't believe it. They got to come with evidence, with proof. That's what the whole book of Galatians is for these people. He went back to Abraham multiple times like, beloved, you read the Old Testament, you read the Tanakh. It's all over the Tanakh that this is coming. Paul is saying that if you all who place their trust in that old covenant, which was received at Mount Sinai, and all who live and trust in the old covenant laws are effectively children under bondage. Why? Because the Mosaic covenant came with over 600 laws that dictate curses and blessings based on performance and obedience. This is what God said in Deuteronomy 28. Now, if you faithfully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all his commandments I am giving you today, the Lord your God will put you far above all the nations of the earth. All these blessings will come and overtake you because you obey the Lord your God. And then he says a few verses later, but if you don't obey the Lord your God by carefully following all his commands and statutes I'm giving you today, all these curses will come upon you, come and overtake you. This is a covenant of obedience in terms of blessings and curses. What do we know in Ephesians? Is that in there? Nope. Ha, here come one. Ephesians chapter one, verse three. In Christ, all the blessings of Christ are ours and all the blessings of God are ours in Christ. That's what we know. There are no curses for those who are in Christ Jesus. That doesn't apply in terms of curses for us anymore for disobedience. Why? Because upon the cross, Jesus absorbed the wrath of God and the scriptures taught that he became a curse for those who have faith in his name. That doesn't apply to you anymore in Christ Jesus. Only blessings. There are consequences for sin. Don't hear different. You do something dumb, something dumb might happen to you. I ain't saying that ain't going to happen. What I'm saying is there's no curses from God because of your sin. That has been crucified on the cross. What do we know about man's ability to keep all these joints, all these laws? They can't. Never could. That's why Paul says this earlier in, in Galatians 3. For all who rely on the works of the law are what? Under. Under a curse. What did it say just before? If you're not careful to do it, curses are coming. That's everybody under that mug. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse because it is written Everyone who does not do everything written in the book of the law is cursed. Now, it is clear that no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. Those who live under that old covenant live under the bondage 
of constant performance-based pressure to be accepted by God. Beloved, the old covenant was never built to perfect you. It was never built to justify you. It was never a means by which you were going to attain access to God. If you, like me, want to know God, then those Ten Commandments and those 613 laws are not the means by which you get to know God. What did God do so that we get to know him? He came down, encapsulated himself in human flesh and said, follow me. That's how you know God. God had to come to me. Until then, he's a distant deity. Until he says, I'm no more a distant deity. I've, I've come and I'm establishing a new relationship between me and you. Look what the scriptures say in Hebrews chapter 8. But Jesus has now obtained a superior ministry. This is the author of Hebrews comparing Jesus' ministry to Moses' ministry. He says Jesus has a superior ministry, and to that degree he has, he's the mediator of a better covenant, which has, which, is, uh, which has been established on better promises. For that first covenant, if it had been faultless, implication what? There was fault in it. If it had been faultless, fault in the sense that if you're using it to attain a right standing with God, failure, it's like banging a screw with a hammer, not what it's built for. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second one. But what did that first covenant do? Here was this point. It found fault with his people. That's the point of the Old Covenant. That's the point of the Old Testament law. It's to show you that you could never attain righteousness in and of your own actions or abilities. You can't keep my laws. The laws reflect my character and nature. Y'all are born in iniquity. I'm holy and just. You can't be me. You need me. I'm going to carry you to me. By saying a new covenant, a new relationship, he has declared the first one what? Obsolete. And what is obsolete is growing old and about to pass away. Look at Galatians chapter 3. There's a key word in this that will help us to fully grasp this reality. The law then was our guardian until Christ. The law was there and useful and helpful. It was watching over us. It was morally checking us. It was doing its thing until Christ. That's, in, that's the means by which Christ fulfills the law. The law has already accomplished its duty. Jesus now comes with a new thing so that we would be justified by faith. The law held us as our guardian until Christ so that we would be justified by faith. But since that faith has come, we are what? No longer under the guardian. For through faith, we are all sons of God in Christ. Now, I'm, I'm straying. Let's get back to the passage that we were originally supposed to study. Galatians chapter 4, verse 24 and 26. These things are being taken figuratively. For the, for the women represent two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai and bears children into slavery. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar represents Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jer Jerusalem. For she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. And she is our mother. The Jerusalem above, beloved, is speaking about all those who are in Christ Jesus. Next Sunday, I'm going to take time. Now, guys, I know this is like, what are y'all talking about? This is a hard passage. Y'all don't understand how this passage is. Next Sunday, we're going to talk about, well, who is Israel according to the new covenant? We're going we're to run through that. 
But the Jerusalem above here is corresponding to the children of Sarah, the children of Sarah corresponding to all who are in Christ Jesus. Therefore, if you are in Christ Jesus, you have been set free from that old covenant. Beloved, here's what I need from you. I need you to stop treating God like he won't love you if you fall short of his glory. That's not the God you serve. I need you to stop looking at the commandments. Now, when I keep saying the law is obsolete, I'm not, I'm not antinomian. I'm not saying that there's no law. I said this a couple weeks ago. In the new covenant, there's over a thousand laws. There's 600 in the old covenant. What is it? There's a grand now. But the means by which the law is used for is clarified because our redemption is secure, not in our adherence to the law, but in the one who was perfectly adhered to the law for us, Christ Jesus. What I'm calling you to do this morning is to stop looking at yourself, stop gauging your relationship with God based on your ability to keep or do or be. Just gaze at Christ. Focus on Jesus because he is the author and finisher of your faith. Beloved, it sounds weak. It's the most powerful thing I can ever give you is to look at power. I can tell you to look at you. You tried. You failed. Admit it. You tried to do right. You tried to do right with God. Fail. You say you're going to do better next time? How long that lasts? It's like y'all's New Year's resolutions. January 5th, X. That's just what it is, beloved. And as soon as we start living as if we serve a God who loves us despite the realities of our fallenness and our brokenness, we will live as free children of God, worshiping him. And as we worship him and behold him, he transforms us to love what he loves and hate what he hates. I don't got to try anymore. I can just be me because I've gazed at him and he's changed me. Now I adhere to the law of God because I want to, because it's beautiful. Didn't set me free though. He did that. Paul's pointing your eyes to Christ. Don't look at the law and see how do you stack up. You don't. Don't look at your neighbor and say, how do I stack up? You don't. Don't look at you this year compared to you last year. How do you stack up? Stop the comparison game. Focus your eyes on Christ and Christ alone and let him convict you of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Let him transform you from the inside out. And I bet you'll have a much holier, much more godly result than you ever had in your own strength. Be free from that old covenant. Be free from the bondage of slavery. Gaze on him. I beg you to. If you don't and you trust in your own devices, you will reap the fruit of your own devices. And you don't want that. I'm going to pray. We're going to close this. Lord, thank you so much for your grace and mercy. The passage from Paul is mighty, and I'm not able to articulate all of its might, but I pray that the Spirit of God interpreted for the people of God to hear what they needed to hear, and that their eyes will be fixed on you, the author and finisher of their faith, which means you start it and you bring it to completion. You do it. I pray that those in this room who know you would continuously course correct their eyes towards you as everything in this world tries to point them to other things. I pray that those in this room who think they know you or pretend that they know you 
acting like they know you outwardly, but inwardly are shook because they know they don't know you. I pray that they'll just come on and open with, their, with what they are. I pray that they will pray the prayer, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Pray that you would just drop them to their knees to worship you and draw them in with the guarantee of their salvation, the down payment of their, of their inheritance with the Holy Spirit. They would know for sure whose they are and who you are. And Lord, I pray for those in this room who don't know you and they know they don't know you. I pray that they would come to see the beauty of your redemption and that you would draw them to you with the power of the love that comes, from the, comes forth from the gospel that you would open their eyes to behold the beauty of what you've done for us and that they would turn from their sin and place all of their trust in you. Lord, they need you. All of the categories need you. And the categories I don't even know exist, they need you. Fill us with your spirit. Help us, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen.